Uh, today we're going to be talking about family. Zach last week talked about uh, marriage. You know, a guy that's been married all two years. Uh, and so today I'm going to talk about children, a guy who's only raised one kid. Um, and so, you know, have you heard, you probably heard that old adage, just because you chop one tree down, they don't call you a lumberjack, right? So, but I think raising one kid and keeping him alive, you know, all of his young adult life maybe gives me maybe a little bit of credibility in, uh, in talking to you about that today. Um, so we're going to talk about kids today, uh, but I wanted to tell you a little bit about my family. Uh, I'm married to Chris. We've been married uh, 29 years. I think I'm right about that. Uh, it's been a long time, and uh, we have one son, Jacob, and I know when we started out, we had this vision for our family, and, and our vision was maybe having four kids. My wife's vision was six. Uh, I like mine better, but, uh, but when we got started, when we started trying, we soon realized that that wasn't going to be, and as a matter of fact, we weren't really even sure we would have kids at all, and so we dealt with infertility issues for almost five years, like that roller coaster ride, uh, being up, up at the high peak of thinking we were, were pregnant, and then crashing down to the valley when we found out it was a false alarm. And so we rode that roller coaster ride, like I said, for four and a half, five years. And then God blessed us when uh, we became pregnant. And so uh, that's the Reader's Digest version of it. And so I wanted to show you kind of a time lapse of photography of Jacob's development. The first picture is one of the first we ever took of him. That's, uh, you can't really see a lot, but he's got a hand there. He's still a friendly guy. He's waving at you. The next picture is a few years later. And this is when he was a little guy. This is his favorite cousin, Allison. Uh, they've been close their whole life. And you can see with what they're wearing, a pattern developed in Jacob's life. And I'll show you, fast forward to today, and uh, this is Jacob. And his cousin Allison. They're still as close uh, now as they were then. Obviously, this is the day that he graduated from the Lexington Police Academy and realized uh, his dream. And so that's our family. Um, that's who we are. And why do I want to tell you that today? Why do I want to show you that? It's because Paul is telling these people in Colossia that God wants us to enjoy our family. God wants you to enjoy your family. And so that's what we're going to be talking about uh, today. Zach talked about first century husbands last week and how they dominated the, the wife in, the, in those times when Paul was writing this letter. Women had no... Uh, real rights, uh, except by their last name, by who they were married to. And uh, just as the husbands dominated the wives in first century, they also, the fathers, dominated the children. And so the father had complete control over the kids. And so he could do whatever he wanted with the kids. He, he could abuse the, his children, and no one would say anything. There wouldn't be any ramifications for it. If he was short on money. If the family was struggling, they could sell their children into slavery. And that was socially acceptable. And in, in some cases, they could actually kill their children. And there wouldn't be, and no one would say anything about it. And so they dominated over their families. And if you had a good father, you were blessed. And if you had a bad father, the devastation could be pretty complete. 
And so that was what fathers were in these times. And I think that's why it's important to understand what Paul is doing. What Paul is doing is asking these people in this church to be countercultural. He's asking them to be different than what society allows them to be. And so I, I, I think it's different today where, where the fathers then dominated the family. Now it seems like the kids are kind of in the center of the household and kind of things revolve around them. I think it's hard to say that that's not the case. Uh, I was wondering if, if there were aliens that could look down with their big telescope and see our society today. I wonder if they could really figure out who was really in charge. I, I mean, if you think about it, if they're looking from the outside in and, and peering at us, they would see kids trailing the parents, getting in the back of the car and the parents chauffeuring them to school. And they would see uh, the parents going about their day and then stopping what they're doing and going back and picking the kids up when they're done. Then buying food for them and preparing it and feeding it to them and then picking them up and taking them to their activities, either to a stage or maybe a ball field. And then the, the parents are sitting patiently and dutifully in the seats, waiting until the kids get done, and then they put them back in the car and chauffeur them back home and start to process all over. I think if people, if somebody from outside of our, our world could see that, they might think the kids were probably in charge. And so that's where we are today. Things have kind of flipped. Where the fathers in first century domineered over the kids, in some cases I think the kids today domineer over the parents. And so that's where we are. And I think this might have started, if you try to explain, explain how this came about, Back in the 60s, there was kind of a sh cultural shift. That's when we started to see teenagers rebel against their parents, against their parents' authority. And, and it's come to be just something that we're, we see as normal. That's just what teenagers do. I mean, if you look at movies back then, and even movies of today, the shows, uh, think about this. You know, we see the teenagers as the, kind of the enlightened ones rebelling against the parents who seem to be just hapless and kind of dumb and, and out of touch. I mean, that's how the world depicts kind of the family unit uh, today. Be being a rebellious teenager kind of became a, a rite of passage. And so Paul's teaching us that we need to enjoy our families. But how easy is it us for to, to enjoy our families um, when basically our kids are in rebellion against our authority? And so let's think about that. So we're going to look at chapter 3. Verse 20 uh, in Colossians, when Paul said, Children, obey your parents in everything. This pleases the Lord. And so if obedience pleases the Lord, then what does disobedience do? And so we need to enforce obedience with our kids. And I wanted to talk about a couple of things that obedience isn't before we talk about what obedience is. And this is going to sound something a little funny and a little serious maybe. But the first thing I don't think obedience is, is the countdown. You know, it's like, I'm going to give you to the count of three. How many of you have done that? I've done it. Oh, my gosh. And you know what? The, the, the three count turns into the ten count, right? And then all of a sudden, we remember fractions. You know, eight and a half, nine, you know. And so, so the, ten, the, the counts, really, I really don't think they work. I really think what it teaches our kid, it doesn't teach them obedience, it teaches them the very point where we're willing to give up. And so the countdown is not all that effective. The, the second one is reverse psychology. This is one I don't think I ever used, honestly. It's like when you say, now don't eat those Brussels sprouts, I don't, don't do it. 
And then you just see the kids with a devious smile eat their Brussels sprouts. Okay, it gets you where you want to go, right? But what are we teaching the kids? We're teaching them disobedience. We're teaching them a disobedient heart. So I wouldn't advise it. Here's another one, bribery. How many of you bribed your kids? I, I did. Come on. You're just not being honest. You know, I say, you know, if you eat all of your vegetables, you'll get ice cream. But you know what it turns your kids into? Little tiny attorneys. Because they're like, well, if I eat half my vegetables, can I get a cookie? I think we got enough attorneys in the world. I, I apologize. I'm not getting on attorneys. But, but it does. It turns your kids into negotiators. It's almost like an auction. And so I'm not sure that that's a good one. Now, here's one on a more serious note. It isn't obeying your kids. And what do I mean by that? I, a couple of things that, that came to mind. I was at middle school picking up Jacob when he was younger. And there was this kid standing outside with his principal. And this kid was melting down. I mean, it was kind of uneasy to watch. He was literally cussing at this principal. And this guy had the patience of Job. I mean, he, he really was. He conducted himself really well. Then the mother pulls up, and I thought, finally, this is going to be done. But the kid lays in on his mother. And the kid starts cussing his mother. And the mother opened the door. The kid wouldn't get in. And she finally just said, please, get in the car. I'll give you whatever you want. And I thought, oh, my gosh. And, and I, said a, I said a silent prayer for her uh, right there. You know, I had a, a neighbors that moved in next to us, and they were telling me the story of how they were trying to move back home uh, close to where they, where they grew up. And, and they said, you know, we almost thought we weren't going to be able to come because our 12-year-old didn't want to come. <laughs> I'm serious. That's what they said. And then they said God intervened. And the, the boy finally agreed. And, and so I, I probably was standing there pretty slack-jawed. I don't, I don't know what expression I had on my face, but folks, if you're going to make a family decision that's right for your family, you know, your kid doesn't get a vote in that. I mean, you have to make that decision on your own. Now, when we used to have family meetings, I would take the input from Jacob, but we always made the decision, and we didn't follow his lead. And so that's what obedience isn't. And so, what is obedience then? And there's, but the best example I can give you here, and it's, it's, still, it's still kind of an analogy here, but it's, it's basically mom and dad both being uh, obeyed. It's about obeying mom and dad. What I'm saying is there can't be a good cop and a bad cop Amen. in your family. I heard someone else say you can't have a cop and a clown. You know, you can't have that because the parents have to speak with one voice. You know, we've got, uh, I hate to use this analogy too much, is we've got a dog. Okay, I can't compare that much to a kid, but, but it's, I think it's fitting. His name's Yogi. He's a 75-pound dog. He's a big guy. And when I speak, Yogi listens. When I say no, Yogi stops in his tracks. When my wife says no, he goes on about his business, and he just kind of ignores her. And I always say it's because I'm the alpha, and my wife is the kennel mate. You know, I, I give him orders, she gives him treats. And so it's kind of, kind of understandable why he does what he does. You know, the dad can't be the bad guy 
and the mom just speak always with a soft voice. And it can't be the other way around. The mom can't be the bad guy, and the dad speak with a, with a, with a soft voice. They both have to speak with uh, one voice. Amen. Mom and dad have to have one. Uh, when dad speaks, uh, the kids should hear mom's voice. And when mom speaks, the kids should hear uh, dad's voice. The best analogy I can give you of this, too, is our eldership, our leadership in the church. One thing that's required, if you're called to be an elder, if you're tested and, and you're trained to be an elder, you have to agree to one basic thing, that you agree to speak with one voice as an eldership. And what that means is when the elders have to make some decisions, they're required to make some decisions. They meet on one day a month, and when they meet, they discuss the issue that they're talking about, and then they can disagree, and they can debate the issue, and it can be lively as, as they want it to be, but when a decision gets made and they walk out that door, then it's required that they all speak with one voice. Amen. And so just as in the eldership, that unity of leadership creates unity in the church, unity of voice between mom and dad creates unity in the family. Amen. And so it is definitely necessary to speak with one voice. One thing you got to be careful about, too, and this was me. I just I wanted to be my kid's best friend. I mean, so desperately. I never wanted to, to discipline him. I just wanted him to like me all the time. But, but my job as a father meant he wasn't going to like me all the time. And my job as a father meant I wasn't going to enjoy him all of the time. But that's our responsibility is to be the parent. Uh, and the friendship comes later. God wants what's best for us. He wants what's best for your kids. And when the kids speak with, an, with obedience, I really believe that's music to God's ears. That, that it's a form of worship when the kids uh, obey their parents. And so Paul goes on and he kind of flips the coin a little bit in verse 21 and he says, fathers, do not exasperate your children so they won't become um, discouraged. And so I think what Paul is saying here is he's warning us not to go overboard with our discipline with our kids. Uh, we're not to exasperate him. You know, I, I loved my dad, and I appreciated his, his discipline. Well, let me back up a little bit. I appreciated it later in life. I didn't much care for it while it was happening. But I, I know later in life I thanked him uh, for his discipline. But you know, I've got to be real honest, when my dad was a younger man and I was younger, he was a bit harsh uh, with me. And I'm not talking about the physical discipline, I'm talking about his grace. Sometimes his grace wasn't forthcoming. See, my dad uh, was kind of old school and he didn't really express his, his emotions really well. He didn't really express his love for us. And so um, he had the discipline thing down. I mean, he, he had that... He definitely knew how to do that. He had complete authority over me, and I feared him. Uh, but I remember when I was younger, the fear was all I really experienced. I really didn't experience his love. And I, but, but I'll tell you what, he, didn't, he, didn't, he withheld grace sometimes. And I, I saw a man. I saw how God can soften a man's heart. Uh, there, my dad had a health scare, and from that point forward, we kissed and hugged each other. Um, and said we loved each other before we parted company. And so I saw a man uh, soften, and especially when we gave him a grandson and my siblings gave him grandkids, then he just turned into a marshmallow. 
So I love my dad. He shaped me in a lot of ways. Um, I learned a lot about being a father by what my dad did and even by some of the things that uh, he didn't do. I think about him every day, and, and I miss him. And so what Paul is saying is balance your discipline with grace and never, never withhold affection uh, from your kids. So to kind of wrap all this up and ball it up, I want, to, I want to share with you seven biblical principles of parenting. These aren't mine. These are biblical. Uh, so let's start out. The first one is this. Your child is your blessing. In Psalms, it says, sons are indeed a heritage from the Lord. Children are a reward. And, and I believe that's true. I think God gives us kids so we can understand his love for us. Because God's love is paternal. When we have kids, we can understand. You know, when we, were, when we were ready to have a baby, people told us, your capacity to love and to worry is really going really to increase. And there's nothing more true than that. And I think this is what God gives us to know how he loves us. Here's another one that's a tough one. Your child is your responsibility. He's your, they're your responsibility. Uh, when we left the hospital with Jacob as a baby, he was in the NICU for a couple of days. And uh, when, when we left, they, they handed him to us, and they, they threw us some paperwork and, sa- and said we could go. They let us leave with him. <laughs> and it's like, we didn't even have to take a test. And, and so here we are walking. We've got him in the best car seat you could possibly buy. And we're walking. He's about an inch off the ground because we don't want him too high off the ground. And, and then we, we put him in the car, and we strap him in, and my wife sets, and she's kind of huddled around him, and I'm, I'm adjusting the rearview mirror. I'm driving 10 miles an hour down Nicholasville Road. <laughs> That's just getting him home, let alone, you know, worrying about raising him, keeping him alive until he's uh, a little older. And so um, it, they're your responsibility, and we never felt that responsibility diminish, and even to the day we feel that. And so that's what the Bible tells us. You know, you, they're, they're your responsibility. It's not their teachers. It's, it's not the, the, the ministers here at the church. It's not the grandparents. The, the ki- kids are your responsibility. And so that is a biblical principle. The, the next one, the third one, the point of parenting is godliness. It's godliness. You know, I could have done so much more to instill godliness um, in my son. And, and I got to admit, I depended too much on our youth pastors and ministers to do that when I was younger. But I found out later that I might have taught him a little more than I thought. Um, one thing, one, one, one incident uh, when he was a little guy, he was, I don't even think, I think he was just barely speaking at the time. But I was in the kitchen, he was in the living room, and I could hear him kind of knocking around in there. And then I noticed after a while it got real quiet. Now, if you've got a toddler, you know when it gets quiet, that ain't always a good thing. And so I thought, I better check on him. So I went in the living room, and, and I was shocked at what I saw. He had gotten a screwdriver out of my toolbox, and he had taken apart a little toy cell phone. And I was just amazed that, how did he know how to do that? And it just kind of, I realized he'd watched me. He had kind of seen me messing around with something and using a screwdriver, and he figured it out. And, you know, he'd watched me do it. And another analogy is, when I went to Israel, I carried a Bible around with me. I carried my personal Bible, and at each location where we stopped and we had a study 
uh, I would open that Bible and I would take notes in it and I would highlight the passages and then I would find a recognizable spot and I took a picture of it. And I'd love to show you all those pictures, but I can't, but I am showing you my favorite one. Uh, this is my Bible, the Bible I was telling you about. I had it opened uh, to the passage of Jesus praying in the garden uh, the night before his crucifixion. And this is actually uh, cradled in the, kind of the, the, the stump of a 400-year-old olive tree. And it's in the Garden of Gethsemane. And so I, I took those pictures, I gathered those pictures up, and then I wrote an inscription in that Bible. And on my son's birthday, uh, when I got back, I presented him with that Bible. And I gave him the pictures. And uh, I wrote an inscription. There's no way I could read it to you because I'll, I'll fall apart. But, but I, I wrote an inscription. But really the gist of it was, I don't want this to be a relic that you put on the shelf and gather dust. I want you to study through this. I want you to look at the notes that I wrote in those different locations. And, uh, and so that was my prayer, is that he would wear this Bible out. And so fast forward, and he's moving into his own home here in uh, Versailles. And uh, I go in to check on him. He's a third shift worker. And uh, so I walked in, and I kind of peeked in his bedroom after he had just gotten up, and there laying on the bed open was this Bible. And uh, so... He's, he's, he's watching, you know, he's, he's listening. And he told me one time, I don't even remember what this was about, but um, I commended him on something and told him I was proud of something that he did. And he said something that really humbled me. He said, Dad, I know you, you didn't think I was listening, but I really was. And so um, that, really, that really humbled me. And so your kids are watching and they're listening. That's encouraging and really scary all at the same time. Because they are picking up on what you're doing. What you do and what you say can shape who your kids become. And so we have to be careful with that. Here, here's another principle. Your child starts with a sin nature and they have no theology. They start with a sin nature and they start with no theology. You know, that kind of explains a lot because when Jacob was two years old, I thought, I thought he was a terrorist. But he has a sin nature, just like us. And so we have to acknowledge that. We also have to acknowledge they don't have any theology. And so you're responsible for teaching them your theology. And if you don't, someone else will teach them theirs. So we have to teach them our uh, theology. And um, there's some well-meaning people that have told me that I, I want to teach my kid about uh, all the different religions and let them to, to decide what they're going to believe. Well, folks, if we believe that Jesus is the only way to Christ, if we believe that he is the son of the living God, if you take that buffet approach, you could be very well condemning your kid to an eternity in hell. It's our responsibility to teach them uh, our theology. And it's really dangerous to believe what we believe and not raise our kids in that truth that we've accepted. It's really dangerous you know, that, our, children, our children's pastor, and I talked about Zach, the youth pastor, these are great people, and, but they can't do in 45 minutes what you don't do every day of the week. They can't make up uh, for all of that as good as they can be. The time that you have with your kids is ticking away. And if you want to see a good analogy of that, go back in the corridor in front of the children's uh, sanctuary. It's back on this side, and you'll see these shadow boxes on the wall. And they're full of beads. The, the one, and it represents the timeline you have with your kids. 
And so at the very beginning, the box is full of beads. That represents all the time that you have. And then as those, those milestones pass, the beads get smaller to the point where, there are, where there's none left. And so we have a very limited amount of time with our kids. And so use your time wisely with your kids. And know my football coach used to point at the scoreboard and said, every second that goes off that clock is gone forever. And so take advantage of the time that you have. And the same comes true, uh, is true with our children. Uh, we have just a limited amount of time to influence them. And so use it wisely. Use it wisely. Here's another uh, principle. Your child is vulnerable and you've got to protect them. Now, that doesn't mean it's okay to be that helicopter parent that's hovering over them all the time. And it certainly doesn't mean it's okay to be the bulldozer parent that's knocking every obstacle out of their way and making life easy for them. That's not what this is saying. But folks, your kids are surrounded by evil. More so today than I think we've known uh, in a while. They're surrounded by it. And the bad thing is a lot of it is presented as good. And so it's your job to help them to discern the difference between good and evil and help them avoid it. And so we have to protect our kids. Here's one that's, that's a, that maybe is foreign. I, I don't know. I hope it's not. But know this. The Holy Spirit knows your child better than you do, and he'll help you raise them. We have the power of Jesus Christ in the form of the Holy Spirit, this gift that we received when we believed. And it's a resource that we can use to raise our kids. And first of all, we have to acknowledge His existence ourselves. And then we have to teach our kids to acknowledge Him too. And so the Holy Spirit is there as a resource for us. I can't think of a better resource than, than we could ever have. So acknowledge the, the power of the Holy Spirit. I know some people don't like to talk about that, but the Holy Spirit is a, is a person. The Holy Spirit's not a, a thing. It's not an idea. It's not just a feeling we get when we worship. The Holy Spirit is a person, and He's there to help us. Last point. Always love your children and work towards enjoying one another. Always love your children and work towards enjoying one another. I used to tell my son, I cannot wait until I don't have to be your dad. I can't wait until we can be friends. And, you know, I, I, I told him that. I alliterated that to him. But my role as a father, as I said before, kept me from totally enjoying him completely. But my son is 24 years old. He's a man. He's independent. And I've, I've reached that place that I've yearned for. Uh, my son is now my good friend. And uh, I love that and enjoy that relationship with him. And I think it's all the things that we did when he was younger that built towards that. He still comes to dinner every week, even though he's got a busy schedule. He's got a wonderful new girlfriend, and they come and have dinner with us every week. And uh, still wants to hang with us. And so um, that's, that's your carrot day. That's what you can look forward to is being friends with your kids. You know, folks, our mission here at Journey Church, the reason we exist is to move people on a simple journey toward Jesus. And we're motivated by our love for God, our love for people, and our desire to make disciples that make disciples. And folks that know me know I, I talk a lot about making disciples, and I'm trying to learn how to do that and teach others how to do that as well. And they kind of, some people tell me I'm a broken record. And, and I, I got to admit it, I am. But that's what God's calling me to do. That's why I'm here, is to, is to help process that, to help process uh, teaching people how to allow God to pour into them and then to take that and to pour that in, into others. 
I think that's what God's left us to do. It's what Jesus left us to do until he returns. And that's to grow his, uh, his kingdom. And don't take my word for it. Dig, dig into that Bible and read that for yourself. And if you want me to, I'll help you walk through the life of Christ and show you how he did it. So we're supposed to work towards influencing people in our circle of concern. And so the best place to start, in my opinion, is those people that are in the tightest circles of your concern, and that would be your children. Folks, your children are the first disciples that you're supposed to make. And so that is, if there's one point that I would stick on and teach through this whole sermon, it would be that, is that our children are our first disciples. Nothing should take more priority uh, than making disciples out of our children and instilling spiritual growth in our kids. And it's kind of hard to instill spiritual growth in them if we're not growing. It's kind of hard to teach them something that you don't know. And it's really hard to, to teach something that you haven't lived out. And so our first primary goal should be to, to grow spiritual ourselves and to instill spiritual growth into our families. You know, in a few weeks, we're going to be starting uh, a new series. I know it feels like we've been in Colossians forever. It's just, it's just four chapters long, but we've been, we've been going a verse by verse. And so we've got a couple more weeks to go. Towards the end of the month, we're going to start a new series where we're going to show you what moving on that journey looks like. We're also going to start those temporary groups that we did back in the spring. We're going to crank that back up again. And so you're going to have an opportunity to join a group and follow along with those sermon series. We're going to try to find different creative ways to get you involved. Uh, because of busy schedules, we're going to try to make it more accessible. But I want you to keep an eye on that. I want you to think about that and pray about taking part in one of those groups. We had several people that did that, um, and it was a blessing. In just a moment, we're going to literally come around the tables up here, and we're going to join in communion. And Jesus gave us this as an ordinance, first and foremost, to remember him and to remember his sacrifice that he's made for us and for us to remember the promise that he made to us. And if you're new here, if you haven't been here before, what we do is you come up to the table that's in front of your section, you take the emblems, and you kind of rotate back to your seat. And we're going to take time to observe that. This is also a time that we can set in judgment and reflection on ourselves when we can look at the things that we're doing or the things that we've done and ask for the Holy Spirit to, to work, through, work us through that. And this, I believe, is an ordinance that Jesus set aside for believers. And maybe you're here today and you're not a believer. And if that's you today, this is a good opportunity for you as well uh, to be talked through that. I know I'm going to be up here. I always stay up after communion. I'm going to ask if Zach would stay up as well. And if you want to, if that's you, if you haven't accepted Christ into your heart and maybe he's compelling you today, then we would like to, to pray with you about what that process looks like. Maybe you're here today and you just need prayer. Maybe you're going through some tough stuff. Uh, maybe there's some turmoil in your life and you, need, you need, just need someone to petition God with you. Uh, we're going to be there for that too. We'll st I'll stay up after the song plays, so just, uh, just feel free to come up. Maybe you just want to come up and offer praise to God. Not just for your blessings, but just, just who he is. And so we want to make prayer a big part of what we do here at church, and so we want to make that available to you. So please consider coming up and uh, praying with us. Thank you all for listening to me about parenting today. Um, kids are a blessing. I can attest to that. And uh, I just ask you to explore more of that 
in the Word as you study on a daily basis. And so if you would, it would be a real honor if you would bow your heads with me as we pray for communion. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for your blessings. Thank you for who you are. Thank you for our children. Uh, what a gift. And God, I pray that you would just, just encourage us. Because I know raising kids is messy. Raising kids can get tough. And we're raising them in this broken world, which makes it even harder. But God, I know through you, even though we're going through all this stuff, we can find joy. God, I pray for this meal that we're, that we're taking, these, this, this juice that represents the blood that was spilled at the foot of the cross, the, the bread that represents the broken body of you hanging on the cross. Thank you for giving us the sustenance. Thank you for giving us such a simple way to just reflect on you and to remember your gifts. God, we love you, and it's in Christ's name we pray.